Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just €29, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Energy Enablers, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy, which speaks to the people making a difference every day in the energy transition. My name is David Weston and my guest this week is Serge Collar from professional services firm EY. With the rapid growth seen in the electric vehicle sector in recent years, I wanted to touch base with Serge to hear where the industry really is and what needs to happen next for it to really press on with supporting the decarbonisation of transport globally. I hope you enjoy the show. Serge, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Energy Enablers today. Just to start with, what do you make of the current state of the electric vehicles market and where are we with it? So, well, listen, I think it's an incredibly exciting market. It's really fast moving and it's uh, probably one of those markets where if you look at the adoption curve or at least the shape of the adoption curve, it almost looks uh, exponential. Um, You know, we've been for such a long time because they've been around for many, many, many years and, you know, we had fairly flat adoption rates, but if we look at, at you know, how the adoption rates have been progressing and the way that we look at it is, you know, the percentage of new car sales being electric, uh, so either a battery electric or a plug-in hybrid, um, we're almost looking at doubles right now. Um, I think across Europe, it was around, I think, 21% right now, but I think that includes actually all of Europe. Uh, if you look at Western Europe right now, some, you know, depending on country, we're looking at 30 to 40% um, of new car sales. Um, but, you know, also other markets like China are going incredibly fast. Uh, they're past the 30% mark right now. And I think also in the US with um, the, uh, you know, IRA and, of course, also the moves of the car makers, um, last year was 7%. Um, but I expect also a quite serious uh, jump in that regard. So it's definitely a market which is moving really fast. Um, you know, I think we need to revise our predictions in terms of, you know, the kind of penetration that we might expect by 2030. Um, you know, I think if you would look at the EU's targets right now, I mean, they haven't sort of spoken about a specific number of vehicles on the road. They've been more expressing the target for transportation around CO2 uh, reduction. But if we sort of translate that, you're probably looking at about 55% of all new car sales. But I think we have a really solid chance of being past the 75% mark already by 2030. So I think we're looking at a massive acceleration. I think the market is in good shape. There's still plenty of challenges. I'm sure we'll talk about those. We will. But uh, the dynamics are, I would say, really high. It's fast moving. So would you say it's a a mainstream market now, established the transport market? Well, so, 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 you know, again, it depends a little bit on, on the, you know, I would say the granularity of that question. Yeah. So if you would look at, you know, the typical sort of technology adoption curve, which is one way to sort of look at it, right, which starts with the innovators and then you have the early adopters and then you have the early majority, the late majority, the laggards. A market like Norway is already past all of that and is already in the laggard phase. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we're looking at a market. So in Norway, I think last year, 89% of all new car sales were battery electric. 
right? Um, you know, and then on top of that, there was like, I don't know, I think it was five, six or 7%, which was plug-in hybrids. And then just a marginal part of the market is actually internal combustion engines. Yeah, so, you know, the target which they had set to ban the sale of ICEs by 2025 is probably not really necessary if you look at it. So that is clearly a market which has gone through the entire technology adoption curve. Um, but, you know, also in the, in our market, so across Europe on average, um, is also, you know, we're also in a place where we are past the early adopters and we are in the early majority now. So, yes, it starts to become mainstream. This being said, um, you know, if you sort of turn it around, you could also say that, you know, more than seven out of 10 people still don't buy an EV. Yeah, but the, the, we actually do every year, we inquire about, you know, 30 to 40,000 customers globally um, around all things energy. Um, so this is a recurring uh, sort of study that we're doing. And we're seeing that globally, and so this includes also, you know, many big uh, emerging markets, um, buying consideration has jumped in the last, uh, I think, two years from about 30% to over 50%, 52%, as a matter of fact. So it really means that one or two people um, are at least seriously considering buying an EV as an ex-car. Doesn't mean that they do it, right? But the consideration is really moving fast. I definitely, I count myself among that. I mean, hands up, I do own a, a, an ICE, but... I think our next car, when when that car is no longer economically viable um, for us, whether it's because it mechanically breaks down or whatever, then my next car will probably be an electric car. Yeah, and the interesting thing, the interesting thing um, is that you know we also ask people, so why is it that you would consider an EV, or what is holding you back? Um, I mean, for an EV. Um, so the interesting thing is that you know the I would say the early reasons for people, so typically the innov- the innovators and the early adopters. I mean, they were about, oh, we love the technology or it's great for climate. Um, so, you know, more like those typical sort mm-hmm. of buyer values. Yeah. What we are seeing is that the buyer values are rapidly shifting, you know, into mainstream as in because it's cheaper, yeah, because it's a better experience, because it's better looking, because it's, you know, more modern. Yeah. So, you know, it's actually shifting quite rapidly. Yeah. But again, you know, still many challenges, um, and in some cases, cost uh, remains one of those. How has the market fared with the recent economic challenges that we've seen over the last sort of twelve months? So the uh, and I don't have the exact number there, but it's very clear that the uh, let's say the, the the car market as a whole has suffered um, okay. from you know both the supply chain challenges. Um, you know, which were about, uh, if you remember all of those uh, stories, of course, about uh, chips not being available and so on. Um, you know, so, so that, that's been a problem. Um, also, of course, in conjunction with, you know, inflation and the associated costs. Yeah. So, uh, so, and again, I don't have the exact number in mind, but I think total car sales, um, I mean, certainly have been depressed. Um, but the relative share, I mean, in that, of course, of EVs, um, you know, continues to increase very, very rapidly. Yeah. So, you know, from a trend perspective, and sometimes you will see people actually sort of trying to make the point like, oh, look at how EV sales are actually depressed and so on. Um, but the reality is that, that, you know, if you sort of look at it at the bigger picture and you look at all the trends, I mean, it's undeniable it's increasing. But, you know, sometimes we will see jumps uh, or drops um, depending on subsidy regulations, which get, for instance, China had, you know, very generous subsidies in place, um, you know, up until uh, the end of last year. Uh, that that obviously, I would say, organized a kind of a spike. Yeah. And then typically what you will see is a short depression after that, but then a rapid acceleration again, 
you know, as I would say economic viability increases or new regulation comes in place, uh, be it to, to, to actually, um, you know, I would say, uh, destimulate, that's not a correct English, of mm -hmm. course, but, uh, you know, not, not prohibit or ban, but, you know, to disincentivize, yeah. the better words, uh, ICEs, uh, or to incentivize, uh, you know, BEVs or, uh, plug in hybrids. Yeah. So, so it, it, it's not a straight line. Yeah, but the trend is undeniably very positive um, and irreversible, in my view, for EVs. Mm, yeah, we touched on it already, but what are some of the main challenges then that businesses and individuals are facing when transitioning to electric vehicles, and how do we overcome some of these challenges? So I think it's it's actually quite different uh, for individuals versus businesses. Right. Yeah, so maybe maybe I'll start I'll start with businesses. <laughs> yeah, I mean because. I mean, inevitably, we're looking at, I would say, the creation of a new ecosystem, um, you know, an ecosystem which actually now is also a connected ecosystem because, um, you know, to actually enable a really good experience, we need to connect three ecosystems as a minimum. Yeah, so the automotive ecosystem, but also the building ecosystem where you will have chargers and so on. And then, of course, also the energy uh, ecosystem. Yeah? So uh, it, it, there's complexity, which is challenging for business. Um, you know, and specifically also for the consumer that needs to navigate, you know, I would say all those different ecosystems. But I would say the, the biggest challenge for businesses is that, I mean, obviously we are at the start of this revolution. Um, if you look at total fleet, total number of cars on the road, even if adoption rate is now high, you know, with cars being around 10, 12 years, um, even if, you know, let's imagine we have zero cars on the road right now and it becomes 100% EVs. It's still going to take 12 years before the last car is, you know, off the roads. So there's, there's a lot of stickiness and a lot of, I would say, still fairly small numbers, all in all. And so the amount of capital that has to be deployed to organize the new, this new business, um, you know, be it in chargers, be it in battery factories, um, but actually also developing new platforms for car manufacturers. I mean, they require billions and billions and billions. If you look at total numbers in aggregates, um, you know, and success is not guaranteed. Yeah. I mean, look at British Fault, which was, I think, a very difficult story, very promising one, but a very difficult one, obviously. Um, but also, if you look at, um, you know, the analysis that we're doing on charging infrastructure, typically payback times range between eight to 10 years right now. Yeah. And so you, you do need, I would say, a different model, um, you know, to make this work. But it's very clear that if you're looking at capital intensive deployment with long payback times, in an inflation, um, you know, I would say, uh, heavy environment, um, of course, makes things very complicated for business. So that's on the business side. Um, I think on the consumer side, um, I'd have to go back to some of those buyer values I was talking about. Um, you know, whilst a lot of those buyer values tend to be similar to those of a normal car, it is very clear that, you know, TCO as in total cost of ownership works out quite well across most vehicle categories. But the reality is that specifically, if you look at, you know, the uh, smaller vehicles, the cheapest vehicles, people don't make a consideration on TCO. They will just look at upfront cost. Yeah? And this is where, you know, simply put, we still don't have enough cheap models. Um, it's changing. Uh, BYD, for instance, they're launching their, their uh, what is it called? I think the model is Seagull, uh, which actually will come in at, I think, uh, below 12,000 euros um, for a car. But, uh, but I mean, those are still the exceptions. So, so costs would still be an issue. Um, in some cases, cost of electricity. 
Um, I was always very proud to be able to say, well, actually, with my EV, I can drive for 65 euros to the south of France from Belgium. Um, but, you know, when energy costs were tripling uh, a couple of months back, I mean, that was certainly not the case anymore. So there is a requirement that we continue to have, you know, affordable, but also green electricity. I think that in some cases might be an impediment if we don't sort of maintain it. Um, another one, of course, is charging, all things charging. Yeah. So and they go hand in hand with range. Yeah. So, you know, there's range anxiety because there's not enough charging infrastructure. And then will it work? Um, you know, can I actually use my sort of payment system that I have? Uh, because that's also fragmented. Um, so there's still, I would say, several challenges also for customers, you know, such that I would say the 30% becomes 100%. Mm. And so how do we overcome some of these challenges? And is there a role perhaps utilities in this space? to support specifically individuals and and you mentioned maybe charging and public charging um but also i guess working with businesses and and helping those those guys take advantage of of electrification of their say fleets and yeah. things like that what role can utilities help in overcoming these challenges well so 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 that that is of course a very broad question um now you make it a bit more focused uh, by asking about utilities uh, but obviously there, I mean, we need to distinguish, I would say, uh, retail utilities uh, or commercial utilities uh, versus regulated utilities, as in the network utilities. Maybe I'll just start with the network utilities. I think they, they have an incredible role to play. I mean, obviously, I mean, they need to make sure that, uh, that we can connect all of the required infrastructure to the network. And in this case, it's first and foremost chargers. And if you look at the challenge that we have on chargers, I mean, it's, it's just incredible numbers. Yeah. Right. Um, across Europe right now, we have about half a million. I'm sorry, I'm just getting all of European yeah. numbers. I know the audience is, is, is more no, of course. No, of course. Um, but, but, you know, I would say by relativity, um, the problems will be very similar across all markets. Mm. But in Europe right now, we, uh, we, uh, we have about half a million public chargers. Um, sorry, yeah, indeed, by half a million. Uh, 500,000. Um, if we are to keep pace with the adoption as we predicted, we actually, you know, when it took us about 10 years perhaps to get to this half million, mm -hmm. we should actually build another half million every single year between now and 2030, and then another million per year between 2030 and 2040 after that. Yeah. Right. So, so the numbers required are very important. Now, obviously, they're under current assumptions. So depending on range, depending on, you know, how some of those economics and technical requirements, uh, mostly technical requirements evolve, um, you know, that might uh, change. And there's a lot of innovation, I guess, we'll also cover some of that later on. Um, but, but the reality is that, you know, utilities have a massive role to make sure that they sort of keep pace with, you know, connecting enough charges quickly enough but also making it cheap enough, yeah? So so I would certainly want to make a strong case for utilities actually being more proactive, publishing more of their data, indicating, you know, to the market, like, you know, this is like, you know, green zones, as in, you know, our network's ready, it's going to be super cheap, super quick, versus the more difficult zone, yeah? So if there's no transparency, for instance, on state of network associated cost, if there's lack of standardization and so on, you know, if permitting goes slowly, if, you know, all of those things are, I think, very important um, points where utilities, uh, certainly if they collaborate with public authorities, can have a massive role in making sure that we keep pace on charging infrastructure. Right. 
I mean, you mentioned public authorities there and leads on to my next question quite nicely. Uh, so where do governments fit into this local authorities, but also national and supranational governments? How do they, what play, yeah. role do they play in accelerating? Events? Yeah, yeah. Also, also massively important. And again, and again, if you look at the kind of change that we, that we need to enable, I mean, it, it's one of those things where everybody has to play a massive role, right? I mean, we can also talk about the automotive companies and so on. But I think specifically, um, if I look at uh, public authorities, I mean, there's some really good examples um, that we've seen in the past. It's not just handing out money, right. but if you look at the early days of uh, of, uh, of of Norway, so sure. let me start with that. So obviously, they gave they gave they didn't give a subsidy; they gave a tax exemption because tar- cars are heavily taxed, and they decided not to tax EVs in the way that they would tax internal combustion engines. But they also organized priority lanes. They organized uh, free parking, free ferries, priority, and so on. So they just they, they worked on cost, but also on offering a better experience. Yeah. yeah so that, that's a really good example. Um, you know, some in some cases taxes um, you probably still continue to be. You know, I think an excellent example. I'll, I'll just give you one from Belgium. Mm-hmm. So Belgium is one of those countries where we have a very very high penetration of fleets. Right, because fleets, uh, sorry, uh, company cars are often handed out as a substitute for salary. Right. That has to do, of course, with our own complexity of the Belgian tax system. But let's not go there. <laughs> um, but but you know, the the government basically decided that they would reduce um, and even stop tax deductibility of internal combustion engines by 2026. So that was announced like 18 months ago. I think it took the market like nine months before you know the majority you know, of fleet acquisitions then actually became electric. So it goes super fast in some cases if you push the right buttons. So I think that is certainly, you know, those are some really good examples. But I think, you know, if I sort of look at what lies ahead, I would really concentrate in any case on charging infrastructure and making sure that we enable that to the maximum. And the other one for me would be, uh, would certainly be uh, the upfront cost, um, I think, for uh, for the, the cheaper vehicles to see you know, what can be done um, to make sure that it's equitable and that everybody has access in the same way. Hi, everyone. Me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. I mean, you mentioned a couple of suggestions there. So you think regulation and government intervention perhaps are still required and market dynamics are not alone going to be able to help shift to a fully electrified so, so, So I would say yes, because it's a question of speed. Right. Yeah. Um, because ultimately, if you look at the commitments of the auto industry, if you look at the economics, uh, you know, fuel efficiency, what have you, um, it's it's become actually quite clear that that EVs, um, you know, are actually I would say a dominant technology in the future, mm-hmm. and it's not an uh, it's not an if but a when question. Um, you know, for instance, EV parity in terms of cost parity is predicted to be between twenty five twenty six, so they'll be cheaper upfront in any case. Sure. Right. And then, you know, after that, um, you know, we're just seeing that people are just buying those cars because they'll want them because they're cheaper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's no sort of climate sort of thinking involved. For instance, in Norway, um, there was no charging infrastructure. People still got the cars. Yeah. And they said, and actually not everybody, because, but they just plugged them in at home. They made them charge for three days. 
And then, you know, if you're driving, like, even if you had a range back then of only like 200, 250 kilometers, you didn't do that on a day. Yeah. So they were just topping up and it also worked. So what I'm saying is that if we are to achieve our climate targets at the right timing, yeah, so with the right timing, then obviously I think we need, I would say, strong incentivization to make sure that the entire ecosystem is built up quickly enough. I think it's a it's a speed question, which is very important. And I think maybe the other one that I'll just add mm -hmm. is that, you know, again, investors, um, and in this case, even also consumers who also invest because of a car is a very big investment. I mean, you also want certainty about your investment, right? Sure. I mean, so, you know, the clarity and this, this debate that we had, for instance, triggered by Germany around e-fuels, I mean, this is just very confusing stuff. It's not going to change the outcome for a bit, but it's just confusing. Yeah. And investors don't like uncertainty. They don't like confusion. Incentives are important. Are governments perhaps paying too much attention to uh, electrification of transport in, in order to show their green credentials and over relying on it and say, look, we're doing lots of stuff in EVs and actually not and ignoring perhaps other areas of the energy transition? So, no, I, I don't think so because the, um, you know, uh, I would say what, what governments can achieve, want to achieve um, is, is obviously, uh, I mean, has to be enabled by working and, you know, I would say economically viable technology. Yeah. And so if we look at, if you look at decarbonization of society and you just look at the emission buckets, right? I mean, as we all know, I think it's about globally, about 40% of all CO2 emissions are related to power generation. Right. And then we have, depending on countries, 20 to 25 percent, which is related to transportation. Eighty five percent of the transportation, by the way, is road transportation. Yeah. So it's clear for me that those two buckets, as in power generation and transportation, specifically road transportation, are what I call right now the so-called low hanging fruits. Low hanging fruit, as in we do have the technology which is available in abundance. Potentially, right, still the challenges, but specifically power generation. I mean, solar is just a multiple cheaper than the next technology, right? Will overtake coal generation by 2025. Yeah? Again, different debate, but, you know, so it's very clear that, um, you know, I would say governments, if they are to meet their own decarbonization commitments, um, they need to bet heavily on making sure that the stuff that works today, of course, is deployed as quickly as possible. So I think that is that is just critical in making sure that we achieve you know the fifty five percent reduction, for instance, in the EU, um, you know forty percent, uh, I think, uh, for US. That we just achieve it by uh, by twenty thirty. We just need to make sure that we you know we are actually dependent on deploying that infrastructure as quickly as possible to meet those targets. In the meantime, obviously, we still require those big bets, um, innovation, incentives, whatever to build out. I would say uh, you know the uh, the uh, the other ecosystems, the other technology ecosystems, uh, for instance, around green molecules or even also offset technologies, which are also required, like carbon capture and storage. We touched on, uh, as you mentioned, some of the innovations that are coming down the pipeline for uh, e-mobility and electric vehicles. What are some, what are some of the more um, exciting emerging trends that you're seeing uh, and that you find particularly promising? Um, you mean around EV technology? Yeah, EV, well, EV technology, but also, I guess, charging as well. Yeah, well, well so, so I mean, the, the part which is probably the most exciting right now, um, and I think it requires us to look at the Achilles heel uh, almost of the EV, right? I mean, which is actually, which is the battery. Right. It's the cost of the battery, the weight of the battery, the range of the battery. I mean, so, and, and they all go hand in hand, by the way. Yeah, so... Um, 
And so if you look at it, I think a battery, if I got my numbers correct, uh, again, on average, because it depends on vehicle categories, will make up about 40% of the cost of an EV, right? And we probably need about a 30% reduction, right, on the cost of that battery still, you know, for EVs to become cheaper than internal combustion engines across all categories. Yeah, so I think right now, um, it's about, uh, I think, what was the price? I think it's about $150 US uh, per kilowatt hour needs to go to about 100 okay. um, is what we're looking at, yeah? Um, but but the part that surprised me the most, um, and maybe that's because I'm not a chemist, <laughs> I'm not a specialist in battery, in battery chemistry, uh, but I've been doing a lot of reading and getting a lot of research from my team around battery chemistry and, and so on. And, you know, I was always told how complex it is because, you know, battery density, then you have stability or instability of the batteries and they catch fire and it's very hard and very tough and so on. Mm. But the amount of innovation David, that we're seeing in the past couple of months, um, I mean, is just incredible. It's, uh, it's very exciting to see that this actually very young industry, um, you know, because of the commitment and the innovation, um, you know, that we are seeing, is actually coming up very quickly with very exciting, I would say, solutions to solve some of their problems, as in either trying to get rid of, you know, very polluting metals, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is an important one. Um, but also, for instance, um, if you look at the initiatives around uh, sodium ion, trying to come up with a battery which is perhaps less energy dense, but certainly would provide, you know, across some use cases, some vehicle categories for the right price point and the right range. Yeah, um, we're also seeing, I mean, I would say the other trend, if you think about solar state batteries, um, as an example, yeah, um, and even, you know, still within the current technologies, uh, lithium ion, I mean, also a lot of innovation. Um, and and just, just to sort of illustrate a little bit, I think for the audience, the kind of change that we're seeing, I think right now the best performing batteries have a density of about, um, I think, around 300 watt hours per kilo. Uh, and again, sorry for those uh, for those audiences that don't count in kilos. Um, but uh, but um, it's about, uh, let's say, the magic number right now is about 300. Yeah, um, you know, there's different uh, companies like Amprius, CATL, uh, which are now launching commercially viable technologies. And of course, they're still expensive, but they're commercially viable, which are actually 500 watt hours per kilogram, which supposedly is also the magic number for aviation um, you know so and there's and there's you know a a view from scientists that they could actually push this up to 1200 uh, hours per kilo at some point in time so we'll see how that goes but i just like the idea and that that's you know not the idea i just like the fact that there's so much innovation Mm. trying to come up with the right solution if you will for the right use case yeah and, and, and again, let's also not forget that, you know, as we have more charging infrastructure, of course, range and sort of this crazy race for the battery that never dies, yeah. the battery that will give you, you know, what is it, 600 you know, miles of range or whatever crazy number you want to be thinking of, it, it's just not necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all of this goes hand in hand. So I think I think this is really great innovation that, we'll, uh, that we will see in the future. And, and do yeah. you see... Um, so obviously the electric vehicle market's fairly reliant on lithium ion uh, and there's inherent issues with that with um, base sourcing lithium quite a heavy industry sector and a lot of it's coming from uh, a lot of the supply chain is based in China and there's there's worry about supply chain bottlenecks as well so by having that diversification of battery technology 
do you see that as having uh, a, a benefit to the electric vehicle sector or is having that one technology so everyone's working to the same way and we can scale it the better route? So we, 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 we will, if you look at the current numbers, we will have both. Yeah, right. If I just look at the capital deployment and the commitments in the auto industry. I think um, it will be a mix of lithium-ion and yeah, other yeah, yeah. So, so in any, in any case, and, and we've seen the same also with solar panels, for instance. I mean, on the one hand, we see this massive scaling, continued you know, automata- um, automation um, and innovation, um, you know, I would say, on the production process. Mm-hmm. And scale is a requirement. And by the way, the market requires this scaling up in any case mm. very quickly. Yeah, so so we'll 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 see that um, and the associated technology improvements that come from there on, sure. um, you know, including also cost reductions, are, are certainly there. Um, you know, the critical the critical problem, of course, is that if indeed we want to reduce costs in a market of increasing demand, mm. where specifically, if you think about mining, it's actually very complex to open up a new mine. I mean, mm. depending on I would say the kind of the kind of mineral you're looking for. I mean, you're looking at you know seven to twelve years, um, so very long lead times. Mm-hmm. And so what that tells us is that we just we just can't bank on you know just more lithium, just more lithium density alone. I mean that 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 doesn't feel like it's going to be I would say the only uh, working solution, right? Sure. And hence also I think on the on the one hand already uh, the kind of innovation that we're talking about uh, with sodium ion, which I think is uh, is very promising. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think it's it's we will require so innovation is a starting point. So that's where we talk about battery chemistry and so on. Um, I think we're also seeing we will definitely require opening up new mines. Okay. Yeah. So I think just building out more capacity, yeah. and this is where we see you know we've been talking about uh, opening up new mines. You know, in the United States, in Europe, in Latin America. So I think game on. Yeah. So that's happening in any case. Um, we're seeing other companies actually moving for long-term contracting, right? Which I think is another way to try and, you know, give give more line of sight. I mean, to the battery industry to actually make sure that it can organize for success. I think is important. And then, of course, the other one is uh, is recycling. Yeah. So okay. uh, you know, we just need to make sure. And recycling doesn't necessarily mean scrapping than full recycling, but it also means thinking about second life, third life, uh, for instance, of those uh, of those uh, battery uh, systems. Yeah. And this is where where you know I think again a new ecosystem will open up. Um, you know, and again, a lot of it is unproven just because it's all very new. But um, I think right now a car lasts, as I mentioned, 10 to 12 years before it's scrapped on average. Yeah. But batteries, um, even with a certain level of degradation. Um, and by the way, all of the data that we're seeing of the oldest batteries comes out more positive than people feared initially. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so even with degradation, um, you know, a battery can last 20 years. Yeah. Right. Um, right? And if you then hit, Provide them, I would say, you know, in the right use case, uh, they might find their use uh, yeah. as well. Yeah, we've done so it's of- also a matter of allocating the critical minerals to the right place, to the right use case, as well as doing everything else. Yeah, so we'll have to do everything else. Yeah, Amazing. such big volumes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and lots of lots of planning and, and discussions still to have around those use cases. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. I just want to touch a little bit on your journey and um, how you got to where you are. What is your background, and did you always want to work in the energy sector? Uh, so the, the short, the, well, I would say certainly on the last bit, I would say no. Uh, but so I did start my my career in uh, in consulting. But originally, I was working most of my time in telecoms. 
Okay. And I was extremely, extremely uh, passionate about it, right? Because it was the age, uh, the age of, of digital mobile phones, mm. um, you know, all of those new things uh, that were sort of emerging. And then I was actually asked to 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 move into the, um, you know, into the uh, power and utilities industry uh, was my focus back in the day, which was heavily regulated and I thought was incredibly boring. <laughs> but I very quickly, you know, got to like it because sure. it's actually quite technical. Um, but the reality is that it's never been as interesting as it is now. It's never been as important as it is now. We think about, yeah, but this is the challenge of our generation, right? Which is, you know, to make sure that we deal with climate change and that we decarbonize society. And the energy industry just sits uh, at the heart of that. So, I mean, it's it's a topic that I've always been personally very passionate about. Um, and I also enjoy the technology side. So, I mean, even like, what is it? I think 16 years ago when I built my house, um, you know, I tried out all new technologies. I think I had one of the first geothermal heat pumps in Belgium uh, with a system deventilation. You know, the solar panels after that, the EV, the hybrid car. So I'm trying out. Of, I'm trying it out, uh, all of it, um, and I think it's important. Um, but I, I also see how complicated it is. Yeah, so, so out of out of personal out of personal interest as well as as professional. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I think it's a very big problem, mm. um, you know, and a very big problem to deal with, but also a very complex one. Mm. And I've always tried, you know, to to experience as a consumer, um, you know, to to sort of see if you want to integrate those technologies, if you want to use them. Um, upfront costs very expensive, but you know, then I see the experience is so much better. And, you know, it's an ongoing journey. So there's a lot of things in my house that I don't that don't work the way that I want them to work. Um, I mean, all of those individual technologies, they do work. But if you just think about, you know, moving to net zero on a house, right, also more storage solutions, et cetera. I mean, that will still take some time. And the, just going back, you said you started out in, in the telecommunications sector. There's a lot of parallels that can be drawn between telecommunications and the energy transition. Yes, Absolutely. Uh, first of all, if you think about uh, maybe, maybe the, the one that I will call out, which uh, I hope will materialize and is gradually materializing, is if you think about internet consumption, mm. right? I mean, at the start, it was all about, you know, how many megabytes you were using or kilobytes you were using. And this is, you know, this, this could be, you know, incredibly, incredibly expensive. But, you know, as technology moved on, um, you know, right now you pay for capacity, right? It's all about, you know, how fast is your connection, um, you know, because it's now it's now so fundamental and it's a convenience element. So the, the same I'm hoping will happen with, uh, I'm hoping, but also I'm thinking, I'm believing will happen with, uh, with energy, right? Because the, the great thing about the new energy system, I mean, is it's total abundance. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is absolute abundance. Um, not necessarily at the right moment in time, right? So again, there's lots of complexities there, but fundamentally, you know, renewable energy is abundant. I think we get as much radiation on a day uh, than, or more, we get more energy radiated on the earth on a day than we use as a society in a full year. Yeah. So the abundance is there. We're moving to away from kilowatt hour based consumption to capacity based consumption. And, you know, as we make things more, as we electrify, they become more efficient, mm. right? So there's like a one in three efficiency factor. So I think it's all very passionate, very interesting just to mm. see how this energy abundance component and new energy system will just allow us to do more and to benefit more, to have more applications. Mm. And, you know, even if we're more efficient, um, I really believe that that as we continue to electrify, we'll just, we'll just come up with newer, better solutions. 
Do you have any advice then for the next generation that are perhaps just entering the energy sector today? Is it uh, an exciting sector to be joining? Well, so the the, the excitement uh, I would hope is very clear. I mean, I think uh, a lot of a lot of our our our, uh, our younger generation are all about purpose. So I think there's probably not a better place. Uh, I think uh, where you can do uh, actually where you can fulfill a very important purpose. Um, so I think that is certainly one thing. Um, but but what I what I would really welcome and what I do welcome certainly I would say with our youngsters as they enter I mean they're so incredibly you know I would say passionate about a topic but also innovative I mean they're of course digital natives and our industry I mean was actually extremely static mm. right with very low level innovation a centrally led energy system and now it's actually it's it's chaos and anarchy as in it's a decentralized energy system. It's all about digitizing assets, making them work together, and all of this in a very customer-centric environment. I mean, the energy system has to be customer-centric or it will not work. So if you think about how different this new energy system is, and I'm even leaving the decarbonization out of the equation, but it's like you know the, 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 the foundation. But if you just think how different this new energy system has to be, will be, Right, because it's decentralized, it's intermittent, it's you know multiple bigger than what we have today, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know, we need to make it customer centric. Yeah, mm. and so I think this is where the young generation, with the innovation capability they have, being digital natives, have just so much to bring to the table. Absolutely. Yeah, interesting. Just finally, then, Serge, before we go today, uh, one one question I ask all of our guests. It's a very big question, but will the energy transition succeed? So. Difficult question, of course, because nobody has a crystal ball. But um, so I think I think uh, so. I'm 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 an optimist, so I'll start with that. Um, so I think one and a half degree is is probably not going to work anymore. Unfortunately, um, I think we have an absolute great chance to stay below uh, two degrees. Um, so I'm very positive about that one. Um, you know, I, I think I, actually an element that sort of reinforces my belief about you know, our ability to succeed is that other than doing all of this for climate, you can actually see that a lot of nations now see the economical value, sure. right? And the geopolitical interests of, you know, energy independence and moving to clean electricity. So more forces have been aligned, which make me believe, uh, which make me actually more positive. Um, but we will still have to solve, I think, for specifically the poorer countries that have more exposure um, so, so my worry is more about that bit rather than you know staying below two degrees, which I think we will do. But I think a lot of people still suffer dire consequences, um, and we will have to make sure that we have a solution for that as well. Absolutely, Serge. Thank you so much for joining us on in Energy Enablers today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Many thanks to Serge for joining us on Energy Enablers. I found Serge's insights into the innovation around battery technologies really interesting, and it'll be fascinating to see how this sector develops in the coming years. Soon, we may be comparing my lithium battery-powered car to your sodium-ion battery-powered model. I'll be back soon with another fascinating enabler. In the meantime, check out Foresight's other podcasts. Every other week, I am joined by Jan Rosler and Michaela Hull on What Matters, and you can hear Sam Morgan over on the Policy Dispatch. Finally, be sure to check out the rest of our in-depth journalism over on www.foresightdk.com so you can stay informed on the dialogue around the energy transition. Thanks for listening.